People know Caroline and Tony now, and I think it is, it's like Ant and Dec. Like, <laughs> like, where's the other one? I think we've always had this ethos when we're hiring, and we hire for potential. It could have gone one way or the other for me, and education made that big difference. So for me, it was about being that big difference to those kids that were in front of me, really. We're joined today by the women driving a multi-million pound business, from nearly leaving education to COVID response champions. Thank you for joining us today. Would you introduce yourselves? I'm Caroline Hamilton, and I'm the Managing Director for White Rose Education. I'm uh, Jess Easton, and I am the Director of CPD for White Rose Education. And I'm Mary-Kate Connolly, and I am Director of Education. Is it annoying that the podcast is is titled Women in STEM? Should it be called Women in STEM? Um, I did think about this because I've done an article as well mm. and it did annoy me a little bit that I thought, why am I even talking about being a woman? I'm just doing my job. But um, I think it's still really important to raise the profile and especially for young people in schools now, there is a bit of an issue there with girls having confidence in mathematics and subjects like that and going into leadership positions. And yes, I think it's important that we're shining a light on it. When I was researching the three of you in preparation for the episode, the word that kept coming to mind was triumvirate, as in you are three women, a force to be reckoned with. And I like to know the etymology of words. So when I delved into it, I only found examples of men, of Caesar, Pompey, Crassus, Washington, Jefferson, Madison. And and then that makes sense because tri being the Latin for three and ver being man. So then do I refer to you as a triumphant, which seems like a bit of a neologism. And well, are you offended at being called a triumvirate? And and how important is vocabulary for you in leadership? Good question. Interesting. Um, I'd definitely say I'm not offended. By it. I think it that sort of language, it does come through, doesn't it, in lots of things like postman, you know, things like <laughs> it's just a thing. And I think sometimes we can go over the top trying to trying to change it when everyone knows it. it I, I would hope that it's not meant to be offensive and you do need to educate your team about the language that you use. Um, and make sure you're being inclusive. Jess, I know you've got two beautiful little girls. Does that come into consideration now? I think it's really interesting. I think before I had children, I didn't really think about it. I was aware that people had um, were, were mothers and fathers in the workplace, but I don't think it really hit home until I had my own. Now I have my own, I really want to champion um parents mothers and fathers to do whatever they want to do and i rent i genuinely believe that they they can be whatever position they want to be uh with working arrangements with more flexibility especially now nowadays as well and i think it's really powerful and i also believe that these people um bring something else to the an organization like us you know we are in education uh, we are there for the children. So if we can't be there for our own children, then I think uh, there's questions that need to be asked. Mary-Kate, you are probably one of the most hardworking people I've ever met. And 
Absolutely. You're welcome. Absolutely committed to your role. That certainly came across when I was doing my research on you for this. Would you tell us a bit about your lifestyle? As a a single woman, you sound like the the perfect employee because you can just spend all of your time focused on work. Yeah, I think I think I get the balance wrong occasionally. Um, And I think I used to think it was a really good thing for the organisation and for myself. Whereas actually, all that would happen is I'd just get myself to the point where I was so emotionally involved in what I was doing that it actually became detrimental to my productivity. Um, so I think, like, I, I love my job and I think I work very hard and my lifestyle allows me to work into the night if I need to. I know it's not an expectation. Um, but yeah, I think it's, slightly more balanced now than it used to be is it a choice that you're making and is that a flexible choice do you feel like you could adjust your work-life balance absolutely yeah it is a choice and it's one that I continue to make because for me I enjoy doing what I do whereas I know if I was to turn to Caroline and say, oh, I really need to finish at four every day this week, she wouldn't put an eyelid. She'd be like, okay. It's a very flexible organisation. Um, we put the time in when it's needed and we take it back when we've got a little bit of time to take it back. And that's the way it's always worked. It's lovely to hear that you enjoy your work and it, it almost sounds like it doesn't feel like work sometimes and you, and you want to go into the evenings and, and get stuff done because you're, you feel like you're making a difference. Do you feel as a gay woman that you're representative of a community or how, how do you feel about your sexuality at work? I honestly feel like it doesn't really make a difference. Like I didn't, I didn't go into a job interview and say, oh, I'm gay. Can I fill that gap in this team? Hmm. <laughs> um, and in fact, it just, it never really came up. And for me, it's always been that way my entire life. Like it's never, I've never felt the need to make an announcement that just one day, oh, I've met someone, this is them, oh, they happen to be female. And that's the same way that it kind of came out at work, just because I'd gotten into a relationship. So it just naturally came out. But yeah, I don't I don't see myself as a gay woman in the workplace. I just see myself as someone who goes to work and happens to be gay. That's a slight difference, I think, in how you think about it. Yeah, I don't think I'm representative in the way that people would assume what that means. Has work ever affected relationships? Yeah. I think or mm, I think I've used work as a way out of relationships before. I probably could have I think the issue was the relationship and work was an easy excuse. I'm too busy, I can't have time. In reality, everyone has time. It's just whether you choose to make it or not. And I was choosing not to make it. In your in your careers, have you come across people who just absolutely love the classroom and want to be classroom teachers? And they don't want to step into leadership because that's not the reason they got into education. And when you got into education, did you see yourself as a leader? Yeah, that's a really, really good question, actually, because... Um, I think there's some exceptional teachers that do end up going into leadership positions 
and senior leadership positions and coming out of the classroom and it's a shame. It is such a shame. And I think if we should have clearer routes to keep people in the classroom and promote them as well so that they don't have to come out. The only route at the minute to be promoted within a school setting really is to come out of the classroom. Um, and it's a shame for the children and it's a shame for the people because they're not necessarily natural leaders or managers either and they end up having to manage people instead of doing what they're absolutely exceptional at. So, yeah, I, I really want that to change one day and hopefully maybe we can help in changing that. I'm interested to hear what what were your passions in the classroom? What did you like to do? So my favourite part of teaching is when you get... I started my teaching career in Rochdale and it was quite... It was actually the school I went to. Um, and it was a really interesting school. Um, great leadership, actually, and lots of big ideas. But it was quite a tough um, cohort of students. Um, there weren't many rules either in the school. So you had to kind of make your own classroom management. Um, but I loved going into classrooms with students that hated maths and just turning them around it was like my favorite thing to do I don't really know how I did it either but I managed to get these students that didn't want to come in school didn't have the uniform on you know just absolutely against the education system and managing to turn them around and get them to engage and then come out with a result that that was just the best thing about teaching for me because then you've just opened a bit of a door for them even if they've just got the maths at least they've got the maths and that they, they've, they've got it in the back pocket um even the ones that say I'm going working with my dad <laughs> and they might go and work with a dad but then in 10 years time when maybe they they reflect because everyone does they've got the maths there and they mm. can fall back on it so I, really I can see that. the emotion in your face and hear yeah. it in your voice how much you care about yeah. thinking about those children i know mary kate you worked in a couple of schools in manchester one in a, a you know a really high performing school and then others in in a more deprived area what was your focus in the classroom i think when i first went into teaching i thought that i would thrive with top set children See, teaching like the very high end maths. So, my teacher training, my first placement was at an outstanding school in Salford. Incredible school, incredible atmosphere, led very well. And it just very, I very quickly realized that it wasn't for me. I think the staff that were all there, they'd been there a long time. They got the results out of the children, but I didn't feel like I was going in and making a difference on any given day. And then, so it got to my second placement and I was dreading it. So it was renowned as being the worst school in Salford. I'm sure it's not now. Um, when I went to school, it was a school that my school was rivals with. So I'd heard some horror stories and then I turned up and within my first week, I'd had a chair thrown at me um, and hid in a cupboard crying for an hour. But then actually... That's the place that I went on to apply to work. And then I worked there for four years because similar to Caroline, those are the kids that I could really make a difference with. And these were kids that had come from really disadvantaged backgrounds where actually I wasn't only teaching them maths, but I was just giving them a little bit of consistency and stability. And yeah, I think just really helping them, them children that are from deprived backgrounds because I've seen it 
with some of my own friends, some of my own family. They've come from, because I'm from the same area that these kids are from, and I'm from a single parent background. And my mum struggled when I was growing up. She worked multiple jobs. And it could have gone one way or the other for me. And education made that big difference. So for me, it was about being that big difference to those kids that were in front of me, really. It's lovely to thank you for sharing that. Why I am just a bit interested in why a child through a charity. <laughs> um, I probably deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think I was just trying to. I think I went. I'd come from a school where you could just go in and just shout at kids, and they would just sit there quietly and do exactly what you told them to do. And I'd gone into a school where if you shout at a kid, they're going to shout back louder. Mm. Um, so I think I'd just tried to instill some discipline. Took the completely wrong approach to it. Chair came flying, got called a specky, something I won't repeat, and um, taught me a lesson, big lesson in behaviour management. <laughs> Read the room. <laughs> <laughs> and Jess, what is your passion in the classroom? So I feel like what's really interesting, like hearing uh, Caroline and my Kate talk, is actually we've all started in these inner city schools um, which are tough environments to start with and any teacher who's in those environments I think um, will resonate with everything they've said so far. Um, for me actually you're kind of you, you're, you're, you're brought into a secondary maths department and the expectation is that you'll enjoy the high attainers, the top sets, the um, key stage four classes as well. But actually, I loved the earlier years. I loved the year sevens, the year eights. They were full of character. Um, you could push boundaries. You could inspire. And I think that was the passion that I found. Um, I found passion in those year groups. I loved teaching. Can I bring you back to your key stage four and five work? Yeah. Because there's been some prominent people in education saying things like girls don't like hard maths. How do you feel about statements like that? Yeah, I feel like, again, I like to push the boundaries, so I would completely uh, disagree with that. I think, um, however, I do think you need to kind of instill it earlier on. And I think um, a lot of the primary schools that we've been working with um, over the last few years with White Rose have really pushed those boundaries. And I think that is something that's uh, really powerful. You know, I did get at Key Stage 4, I did get those girls who literally no one else could teach because they wouldn't stay in the classroom. They would uh, throw chairs. In fact, the first first time I had them, they were on the table. One of them was on a table uh, with a um, traffic cone, which she picked <laughs> up from somewhere. So some really great environments mm -hmm. to work in. But, you know... They were a huge challenge, but a really exciting one to kind of get on board and, again, hopefully inspire. Uh, Jess, who, who, who has been your inspiration? I think it's really interesting to kind of look back and reflect on this question. I actually have two. I have um, my mum and my dad. And they're very, very different people. Um, my mum... She is a teacher um, and, you know, through that, while I was growing up, I vowed never to be a teacher, obviously. Um, <laughs> and um, I saw her struggle with um, having eight years out, 
for childcare, she had three girls. So she had eight years out um, and then went back to the workplace. She went back full time. But I think since then, she'd always struggled with confidence. Um, She was ahead of music. But in a very, very small school, when she moved, I think um, things changed. Education changes constantly. And she always felt a lack of confidence in that. Your mum had eight years off yeah. and then struggled with confidence. Yeah. So you, after your first child, you were determined not to struggle with confidence. Was that an easy return to work? Not at all. I think that was actually my biggest challenge at White Rose. Um, it was, you know, I'd been right at the, with Tony and Caroline and Mary Kate at the time, like we were kind of running the show and it was amazing. And then I went off and had uh, my first daughter and when I came back, I was really, um, I, I think I really battled with that kind of commitment. Like I used to work, I suppose, much, much more, much. I used to work many more hours uh, for White Rose. I physically couldn't do that with a child. Um, and I didn't want to either. Like I wanted to spend time with my my baby. And so I did try and return back on four days thinking, you know, that's the way I, I wanted to do it. And I think this is where it's, I'm really, I'm really an advocate for people coming back from work after children and, and getting the right balance for them. I think everyone is different. And I think that's really important to recognize. For me, four days was actually just really difficult. I was trying to be the person that I was and I changed so much. And I think that was a real difficulty for me. Um, so I think the second time round, when I came back after my second child, which I have quite quickly, um, I'd really reflected on how I wanted to come back. For me, coming back full time was the better option. Um, and for me as well, just take soaking up things. I think I remember telling Caroline that I didn't want to do any, um, I didn't want to make any decisions for the first month. Um, I don't know if I actually stuck to that, but you I tried. tried. Very hard. <laughs> I tried, tried really, very really hard. hard. I told Mary Kate that I wouldn't make any conversation. I wouldn't have any input in her, any of her meetings. <laughs> mm. Can I just listen? That would it go so. <laughs> <laughs> so these were conscious decisions you've made after your second child because of potential mistakes you'd made after the first child. And how long did you have off with your first child and with your second child? So with my first child, I had um, 11 months off. It did. I did have her um, during COVID. In fact, COVID hit three weeks after she was born. Um, so that was a challenge in itself. That was very different. And for people listening to this, there'll be lots of people potentially just returned to work or about to start a maternity or paternity leave of absence. What, what's your advice for them re- returning to work? You've talked about flexibility and kind of like knowing yourself and making the right decisions. Yeah, I think it's, it's you know what, parenting is so difficult. I don't, I think that's my biggest piece of advice <laughs> is uh, expect the unexpected, uh, really think about what makes you happy and how it can, and how when you return, I think my biggest thing is when you return to work, know that it's a, it will have changed you in some way, whether it's a tiny bit or whether it's a big bit, like, but know that it will have changed you having children. And I think I didn't accept that first time round. 
I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be the same. Um, I wanted to be the same Jess Easton as I was prior to children. But I think accepting that actually I am different, but I bring something different to the table now is really powerful and puts you in a position where um, you can have a better, a, a bigger influence, I think. And that's where I suppose my big kind of thing around, you know, I really do cheerlead. I'm a cheerleader. I really do think I'm a cheerleader for parents wanting a promotion or things like that. Or what I hate to hear is someone say, oh, I can't go for that because I'm pregnant or I can't mm. go for that because I've got children. And that is like something that I will fight, I think. Well, we had that instance, didn't we? And we had we had a promotion within our organisation and someone would have been great for that promotion. And she said, I don't think I should go for it because I've just found out I'm pregnant. And I found out about that and Tony did. And we sat her down and said, look, if you want to go for that job, you go for that job and we'll support you with it. And she went for it and she got it. And that's, you should never, ever, ever hold someone back because they're, they're pregnant or they're going to go on maternity and you make it work and work around them, really. So and I'm all very it proud of that. Yeah. And all it really does is encourages other people to step up as well it yeah. kind of empowers the whole workforce yeah. to kind of do those things so yeah I I know the person you're talking about and and I think it is the right person for the job and and that was the absolute right decision yeah Mary Kate if I may I'm going to take you back to when you're 10 years old Manchester United at the time they'd won the Premier League in 97 99 2000 2001 and 2003 as well as the treble in 99 which I'm sure you can remember mm-hmm. At this time, you had been scouted by Manchester United girls and were playing for Manchester United girls. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible achievement. How did that feel? Felt great. Um, yeah, it was it was very short lived because I got injured very soon after that. Um, but yeah, up until that point, football was all I ever wanted to do. I'd never considered anything else. I was I'm one of three. I've got two older brothers. And it was um, a common joke, at family stuff, where my mum was like, oh, I was so excited when I was having a girl. And then I had Mary-Kate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she, to be fair, she still says it now. Like, um, But yeah, like football was all I ever wanted to do. Um, and I worked really hard at it. I was the captain of the boys team when I was at school. I'd spend every summer, the six weeks holidays, I'd get up at, on Monday and I'd go to training at eight and I'd train till five o'clock because my mum was in work and I'd just train eight till five, Monday to Friday. And then I'd go home and I'd train even more. And it it was, so it was great when I got scouted and then, yeah, I got injured very, very soon after and I had to stop playing. Um, so there's, it's called Osgood Schlatter's disease, for fear of saying it wrong. And essentially, like, it's, it's actually quite common if you research it in young children who play a lot of sport. Um, and I did play it a lot. Like, if I wasn't in school and I wasn't asleep, I was kicking a ball. There was no doubt about it. Um, so it, usually you get it in one knee. I actually got it in both. Um, so even just kicking a ball, running, everything was just, it hurt a little bit. And then being the way I am, I'm still this way now. Like, I, I kind of ignore it and I ignore it and it just gets worse. And I had to stop playing. And I remember, like, it's probably, this is a very weird statement to make at the age of 31. 
that's probably the biggest heartbreak I've ever felt in my life. Like it was, I didn't know anything else. That there was no backup plan. And weirdly, like being on this podcast now, I think had that not have happened and I've stayed on that route, I think I'd have felt far more gender bias in that career choice than I have done um, where I am now. But I, so I'd gone from, my bedroom was decorated Man United and I made my mum redecorate it. I wouldn't watch football. I wouldn't wear a football shirt. Like, but, so that was devastating. But then it's weird when you look back now, because at the time I couldn't see that there was any benefit to it. And I'm I'm not I'm not saying things that have turned out badly otherwise, because I'm sure they wouldn't. It would have been very different. But what's really interesting about it is I had football practice every Wednesday night. Um, and it was like a two and a half hour session. And my mum clearly just still wanted me out of the house on a Wednesday night. So she had to find an alternative thing for me to do now that I couldn't play football. So she sent me on an advanced maths course. (laughs) (laughs) And here I am. (laughs) So I was, yeah, it clearly benefited. At the time, I was like, well, that's just adding salt to my wounds, isn't it? Like, (laughs) 11-year-old child's heartbroken, let's send her to do some maths. Um, But no, like, and I think, I think for me, like, a lot of my, it's no secret, like, I'm not, I'm quite an insecure person. I'm quite shy. I'm quite reserved. Um, I'm very open when prompted, but I think I'm just not very forthcoming. But I think a lot of my insecurities stemmed from when I stopped playing football. So in primary school, I was the most confident kid. Mm -hmm. I was the popular kid. And then, yeah, I just really went into like my shell after that. But then, so when I stopped playing football, I thought I wasn't good at anything. But then I went on this advanced maths course. And I, I, got, I knew I was good at maths. Like, I knew I wasn't bad at it. Like, I'd done, I got, like, 99% in my key stage two sats or something. But I just never, I never saw it as something that it was, like, cool to be good at. And I suppose I still didn't, but at least I'd found something that I was good at and that I had a group of friends that respected that that was my skill. Thank you for, for sharing that. It's, it's not easy to look back and reflect. Um, and yeah, you've had a particularly, like you say, like emotional, personal journey that, that shaped your, potentially your life and your career. And I imagine there's lots of other people listening to this or watching this who have had similar things in their life that have shaped their career. So that'll, that'll definitely resonate with people. It, it seems that in this team, we've got Jess, the confident, determined, resilient one. We've got Mary Kate, driven analytical, relentless, and Caroline, the focused, tenacious, strategic one. Is this is this the perfect team? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. Of course it's the perfect team. What have you learned about each other as when you've been working together? I feel like we've been on such a journey. Um, but even today, you don't talk about this stuff, do you? So this is great for us. Like hearing a bit more about each other's backgrounds, even though we sort of know it, it's different when you're sat in a room listening to it. So that's really good. And I think Jess's journey has been really interesting. What you were talking about becoming a mother. And I just think it's she's absolute superwoman. I don't know how you do it, honestly, with children. So, and, and that were a great eye-opener for me with the rest of the team because working with Jess and help and seeing that difference. But we knew we both made mistakes, didn't we? When 
when Jess came back the first time, it was tough. And part of it is because White Rose moves and changes so quickly. It's hard enough when you're there every day, mm. let alone when you've had 11 months mm. off. So that's been just a really good lesson for all of us. And it's great that Jess has got that resilience that we're still smiling at the end of it and we've got there and you've got the promotion and it's great, you know, and then Mary Kate's journey as well. I can, I can relate to Mary Kate's journey quite well because I think we, we started our white rose journey in a similar way. I just used to work nonstop, Mm. crazy, just hours, hours, and it by choice. Um, but that's kind of what you do when you're a startup or a startup company and, and people do it. And Jess did the same before you had your children. We've all been there really from the beginning. And you do some crazy things to get things off the ground when you love it. But I think we're all now, we've all got better balance now. And at least know we can choose that because we have collectively built this amazing team that now we're worried about sometimes because we can see them doing too many hours and we're saying, you know, just be careful. Mm. We've been there. Have a break. Um, but it's just because of the passion within the team that, that you know, people just put their all into it and we couldn't be more lucky really to have a team like that that work like that. And as leaders, then we've just got to be careful. We've got to notice when someone's doing too much and we've got to pull them back and reassure them that that's not the only way to get the next step I'll be brilliant. You, you don't have to work constantly to be recognised. You know, just take a break and step back and you'll be better for it, really. Just to focus on you for a second, mm-hmm. have you had to make sacrifices to be where you are? It's a difficult question because it's always a choice, isn't it? It is a choice. Yeah, my 30s were pretty much like crazy work, but that was my choice. So I sacrificed my hobbies and relationships and and things like that. But I made that decision. I didn't have to. No one was there saying you must do this. So, yeah, you could say I sacrificed it. But then on the other hand, I'm now in a great relationship that I think I wouldn't be in if I wouldn't have done that because myself and Adrian that's my my partner now we did a similar thing in our 30s he lost about seven or eight years working all the hours and not really doing anything with his life and he's now CEO and he's totally understands what I do I totally understand what he does we both respect our work ethic I don't think we'd be together if we wouldn't have done what we've both done um so maybe it was meant to be like that and it's perfect so um you can look at it in different ways can't you some people might say well you you shouldn't have done that in your 30s they were you should have been doing other things with your life but that's the choice I made and I'm really happy with it how do you stop your work life being all-consuming how how do you switch off how do you get away from it I try to make sure and I do have to check myself because I'm not in in the habits that I used to be but I make sure that I go and I go to my horse and I go and make sure I do something because I love the outdoors take my dogs out for walks 
um, and just make sure I fill my weekends with things that are different, particularly outdoors stuff, because that's I am quite a creative person if I give myself time as well. And I find if I don't give myself time, I can't be creative. So it's making sure that you're quite strict with yourself and you shut your, your laptop and you go and do something different and you'll find that, I think, Jess, especially you find this, don't you, where it taking that step back gives you that creativity and the better thought process anyway to do your job even better. So it's really important. And that's why I, what I try to recommend to others. And Mary-Kate's recently refound football, which is great. I think that makes you switch off, doesn't it, and gives you something yeah, I um, think, a bit different. I think I'm a little bit further behind on that journey. Yeah, she is further behind. <laughs> like, I struggle to switch off mm-hmm. very much. I, I'll try, uh, but, yeah, it's work in progress. I think 10 years ago, I thought the only way you could be happy is if you were married with kids and that typical lifestyle, like Jess has. Um, and I think... It's taken me a long time to realise that you don't need that to be happy. And I think what I've learned a lot of the last few years is how to enjoy my own company. I enjoy my job. like, And so, yeah, there's, there's, I'm not necessarily going home to this full house, um, but I am still happy. And this time that that can change, I'm not against it changing. I'm not saying I'm so happy that I'm going to be like this forever but actually I'm now in a really good position in that my happiness isn't dependent on what the public or what I deemed the public saw as normal so for me I felt do I look odd because I'm in this position at this age and I I always assume and I still do I'll be honest that people look at me and go oh look at you you're so committed to your job that you, you you're single and alone and like I've had people in my family say to me oh you're not worried that you're gonna end up on your own because you work too hard and I'm just, and it comes back to what Caroline said about like the way everything kind of works out. And I think we've said it a few times in this conversation about things happen for a reason. Because I alluded to earlier, like I've had relationships fail because of work or because of me blaming work. But actually, I've had relationships fail because I have a different work ethic to that person. And I think work ethic is one of the most, it's one of the things I find the most attractive about another person. And I have a very high work ethic and I'm very committed. And I think. Yes, I think anyone who sees that my work ethic is causing me problems in my life, like, well, it's probably just not, it's probably not the right person anyway. I think a lot of people assume that they should be in a certain place by a certain point with certain things around them. And I think it's actually, it was actually really refreshing for me to realise that actually, no, just go at your own pace, run your own race, as Tony would say. Yeah. He says frequently and just see what happens. I used to feel exactly the same as that. You've realised it earlier than me. Well done. You're ahead. I think you told me. You're ahead of the curve. <laughs> but it, it family and it that perception that you're supposed to have. If you've not got a boyfriend yet, what what are you going to do with your life? Well, and I used to be so jealous of my older sister because she had the husband and the two children. And I, I thought, oh, I'm just not like that. You know, why am I not like that? I should be like that. Why have I not got a husband? You know, all those crazy thoughts. I'm so glad to come out the other side because it's ridiculous. It really is. And happy, you should just, you don't have to have that. It's great. And I'm not knocking anyone that does have that. And But it it shouldn't make you feel so bad as a woman if you don't 
Are you because like we said before, it's all a choice. I was choosing a direction, but it felt no one else agreed with that direction, you know? It but it just shows the strength in that choice, doesn't it? Because it was still despite everyone saying, Well, what why are you just focused on your job? Why are you not meeting anyone? What about children? Are you not gonna miss you're gonna miss it? time's running out you know you know all those things that people say to you um but despite all that I still stuck to what I wanted to do because at the end of the day you've got that drive for a reason it who knows where it comes from and I wanted to work I want because I feel that what we're doing is having a massive impact and I think that's what drives me the most and who knows what happens I'm I'm happy now I might get married one day hopefully Adrian if you're listening you know (laughs) um but if I do I do and it's it's not the be all and end all I'm happy anyway um and I'm really happy that you feel similar and I'm really happy that hopefully Jess is happy as well and we can all have different ways and different routes into it I think that's like quite a good point though because I think people generally would look at me and assume I'm not happy Mm. but then instinctively people will look at Jess and assume oh you must be so happy yeah but yes, no, mar- it all. <laughs> no marriage is perfect she's got two young kids waking her up x amount of times a night like I get in bed I starfish <laughs> I have a great time and like so but yeah I think it's so easy yeah. to assume that Jess must be so happy but actually like I'm not saying I'm not saying you've got an unhappy marriage but actually people probably don't even ask they just assume that you're happy it is chaotic and I'm not gonna lie to you Mary Kate I would have loved to starfish last night. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel very lucky to have got to the points that you are in your careers, seemingly without any major obstacles in the way? And if we think about this, obstacles that are directly related to your sex, mm-hmm. and have you seen friends or in, in other circumstances in your life, people have obstacles put in their way? Because of their sex. Mm. I would actually say that I have had obstacles in my way because of my sex. I think there has been moments in my career where I've had very male-dominated departments. And they have been challenging and there have been moments and barriers that is part of my personality, though. I will always try and well break that mold and like go against what that belief is and kind of I suppose prove them wrong that's that's what I kind of it's one of my drivers so if anyone does that essentially all I do is work harder (laughs) we do see that a lot in in lots of different careers where someone who's had a barrier or has had some injustice it spurs them on and they fight even harder and they're driven so potentially that's something that, that you've experienced and has, has helped you not helped that's a bad way of putting it because that sounds like we should have injustice like it'd be much better to have that smooth equal ride but you found it as a driver well I have also experienced something where I felt I had a feeling that some of my male peers were being maybe paid more than me or um the same for less work um and I don't really know why I had that feeling but I had that feeling and I kept getting told the time will come don't just keep doing what you're doing time will come and 
that only lasts so long. And I have sat down in an official meeting with um, male leaders and said, I'm not being paid this much because I'm a woman. Um, and sometimes you've just got to say it. Like you've just got to say what you think. And how do you now at White Rose ensure that doesn't happen in your company? Well, we'd never, we'd absolutely never um, do anything like that. So with our, you know, all our salaries are benchmarked and it's, there's, there's no difference between gender. Well, we've got a lot of female leaders actually. So I actually think we need to get the balance back a bit. I think we need some male, some more male uh, leaders coming through. But yeah, the, we're just obviously careful with it. We do our research, we benchmark roles um, and HR keep an eye on it. And it's just making sure that there's no inequality there whatsoever. Okay, so if we think of um, Jess's engineering degree, you were one of... Two girls. Two girls and 40 men. Yeah. So large, large proportion of men. And then we're in an employer who's... Um, employing engineers so we've got this huge pool of men and a small pool of women but we want to employ ethically and we want to think about diversity when we employ so we want to employ the same amount of women as men now because of those sample sizes potentially there's going to be a lower quality of applicant from the female group than from the male group how do you overcome that with white rose or what do you think about when you when you have the applicants in front of you? So I think we've always had this ethos when we're hiring and we hire for potential. We don't hire for the end article. And so regardless of the quality that comes in front of us, if we see potential and we all see potential in different ways. So if we see potential in a candidate, we will absolutely give those people a chance. And I think we've seen that multiple times, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of who has come um, to, who has put their application in for White Rose. Um, and we've seen it multiple times as well. Like we have hired people who have been absolutely great, loads of experience and, and one end of the scale. But we've also hired people who didn't do a great lesson observation, didn't have a great interview, didn't show themselves off in the best light. However, we've given them a chance and actually they can, they are now some of our best trainers or have really put themselves out there and have really developed the company as well. So I think you're right. I think the, the I think quality is really difficult because I think all of us, someone's seen potential in us and that's what you look for when you're hiring. You don't look for the finished article. That's a, a lovely way to look mm -hmm. at recruitment and and really positive, a, a lovely message. I think though, like, I think more recently, if I think about the most recent round of recruitment, I think that's the first time afterwards we've actually had to step back and say, oh, how many men and how many women did we appoint? So it like, is it's actually something that you have to think about now. Mm -hmm. And it is a really weird shift because, yeah, it's not, it's just never, if someone's got potential, they've got potential, whether they're male or female or non-binary, like it doesn't matter. Like towards it just just doesn't def like define them, but I think even so we have uh, we have a team of developers, and we've got probably about a team of eight who who work for us, and we have a female developer working for us, and she is brilliant. And I think people assume, oh, did you appoint her because 
she's a female. And it's just not the case. You appoint her because she's just as talented as the men that she's working with. And I think to say that you appoint someone because they're female or because they're something else, it almost takes their skill away from them. It's like devaluing their performance at interview. And I've seen like um, in the news and stuff, for in stuff like development now, which I think is the area of STEM where I think women are probably least represented in terms of computer science and development, you can literally get paid more for being a woman than you can for being a man. And it, it almost feels like I understand what they're trying to achieve and what they're trying to repair, but you're just at risk of going the complete opposite way and in 10 years' time sitting having down and having a conversation about men in STEM because they, they're at risk of being un, underrepresented then. If you, I think there is such thing as going too far. I think every single person is of equal value and I think as long as that is rec- like recognised and not scrutinised, and I think we'll be in a good place. But I think if if you do go, you do push it too far, one where you just cause a whole different issue. What are your aspirations for White Rose Education as we move forward? So we want to continue on our path. We want to have a huge impact on education globally. That's what we're here to do. We're here to ensure that anyone has access to high quality education, no matter where you're from no matter what your background is, that you can access high quality STEM education and we want to make a difference. And I think we're treading a fine line with it because that is the main point. But in order to have that impact, you also need to be a successful business as well. So part of it is growing the business and growing the commercial side that we can then pump back into education and we really hope our main goal one day is to work in really deprived areas of the world build schools create teachers that provide amazing education for everyone so we're on that journey and we will get there i know we will and have you begun to do projects in that vein yes we well we've got a project going on in malawi at the moment which is amazing we've got three people over there right now training teachers they've got 100 teachers to train um working with small children and it's been a fantastic project to work on and we hope that that sort of thing will really grow um and like I say the more successful we are the more that we can do those sorts of things is that localized to a, a small area of malawi that you're working with teachers in a certain area or is it um, widespread it's working with around 600 schools in total so it's fair it's medium-sized um but we really have built a great relationship with the Ministry of Education over there. And it's amazing hearing their vision for education and then our vision for education and how much it matches is just amazing to think we've we've come from totally different backgrounds. We've had totally different experiences, but we both think about the way we teach mathematics in such a similar way. We're using counters in the classroom and they're using bottle tops or whatever they can get their hands on. But it's still, they've got the same ethos. They want the children to feel hands-on with mathematics. They want it to be creative. They really want deep understanding, which is everything that we believe in. Um, So it's a match made in heaven there, really. And I know they feel like we've been a breath of fresh air over there. But then we're learning so much as well from them. Uh, They came over to our conference um, to visit so yeah building a great relationship there and hopefully more to come 
White Rose's vision is for world-class education for everyone, everywhere. Are you saying you've completed what you wanted to achieve in the UK? Oh, no, not at all. No, no. We're, we're not finished. We're never finished with what we're doing. Um, there's plenty of work still to be done, at, both within our organisation internally, but then what we're doing in the UK, what we're doing in Yorkshire, but then international schools have approached us for help and support as well because they've seen some of the great work that we're doing. So we've kind of naturally grown internationally and we've got some really large pockets of areas that use us. So I think we've got over 200 schools now in Dubai alone, and that has been organically driven, the growth. We've got lots of schools in Spain, and we have some in the US popping up. Um, so it's really exciting for us because we do want to make that difference. So we're going to follow that and try and have an impact elsewhere, whilst constantly improving our offer that will benefit schools locally, nationally, and um, internationally as well. When when you think about your career in, in White Rose, what are some of your fondest memories? And one of the decisions I probably, I didn't necessarily agree with at the time, which was a big decision, which I think has actually massively boosted our success, was the response to school closures for COVID. Um, I remember Tony coming and saying to us four weeks before, they're going to shut schools, they're going to shut schools. And the way people like do, just Tony says a lot of things. And we're always like, okay, Tony, shut up, Tony, I'm busy. And like I think we brushed it off quite a bit. And then you could see it worsening in the news. And I'll be honest, I was just excited to have like some time with no commute to get on top of my work. Because like, there's all these resources that had just kind of been brought in. And just as we developed the team, it was a very small team. <laughs> and I think, and I think myself and Caroline actually shared the same view of like, we're going to be able to get on top of stuff for the first time ever. And I think in the end it was, I think Tony sat Caroline down and said, no, I'm being serious. We need to react to this. And then Caroline said to me, oh, you better stop making jokes about that. Like, Tony's not joking. And we, had, like, we went away and we came up with something and we just put this animated PowerPoint together. I did some animations. Caroline, Caroline voiced it over. We showed it to the whole team the next day, set them off making them. And then... We didn't even see him in person again for months. For months, yeah. It was crazy. Got it off the ground in two weeks. We were the quickest to react. Yeah, and it was out. The day school shut, it, it was there. And mm. they came out. There was five lessons, five videos a week for every year group from year one to year, year nine, year nine yeah. in the first release. Every single week. And it was, it was brutal. It was brutal on the entire team. It was exhausting. Like, I think... If, if I look back over the past and if I'm like, oh, when when might someone have been tempted to leave White Rose? I feel like it would have been in that time where they were sat talking to themselves in their laptop for hours on end. And then... You, but still we sent to, them back yeah, when they we weren't sent right. Because quality, <laughs> the quality is everything. Yeah. And then, but then not only was it painful for the person who kept having to record it time and time again, but however many times they recorded it, one person had to sit and watch it that many times to make sure it's right. And I think... I think people probably ended up resenting people they hadn't seen for months just because they were sick of the sound of their voice. And it, and is this for no monetary gain at this point? No monetary gain at all. It was just because we thought it was the right thing to do. And we, yeah, we could have took an easy route through COVID and we could have got some downtime. We could have got ahead and we could have come out with this big launch after it that we tried to sell. Yeah, we had so much to do, didn't we? I yeah. remember. We, it was, it and, was so busy. And I was thinking, 
oh yeah, we might get on top of all this. I really was. And now when we look back, I'm so glad we did what we did. It was a make or break it, moment. But oh wow, it was tough. And that for the whole team, like you say, that that was tough times. Mm. Um but yeah, really proud of what we did and how we helped, hopefully. I know some parents uh, hated the videos <laughs> um, because it was every day, white rose, white rose, white rose. But um, yeah, we're really proud of it. The team will always be proud of that, I think. Yeah. And what's next? What will the next challenge be? Um, I think we're at, a, we're at a key point where we've grown so much that, like Jess was saying, we need great people in our organisation to keep the culture, to keep the quality. Because if that was ever compromised, I don't think any of us would want to still be there. We, we've got to keep it. And I think we're just really privileged that, yeah, we've got high retention, hopefully because we're doing something right. Um, we've got some really great people coming up through the ranks into leadership positions that we we trust to carry it on for us. And I think I'm getting to the stage now, which is great, where I feel I could I could actually walk out and it'd all be fine. And that's brilliant. That's per that's that's when you know you're getting it right that the company would carry on with the same standards, the same quality, even if you weren't there. So that's brilliant. Um, because we do want to grow. The next step is digital. We need to digitize our offer, and that's tough. That's a really hard thing to do. Um, getting experts in that can help us do that and make sure it's accessible um because we know schools aren't necessarily right now fully ready for the digital era um there's budget restraints there's technology restraints but we also know we're moving there as well so we've got to help teachers and help schools access it in the easiest and most cost effective way so I'd say that's our next step, really. And also international, who knows what might come of that. I think we are actively trying to grow, but a lot of things along our journey have kind of come to us and I feel that something is going to happen. It's that gut feeling again where I can see us doing a translation, for example. Um, I'm not sure which country that might be, but I think it will happen um one day and again we just need to be ready for that and that'll be a really exciting step I think for White Rose. I think the first one that really stands out has to be the premium resources. That was my first step into a leadership position with White Rose and it was a big project. There was a lot of feedback along the way. Learning even more about Tony and Caroline's high standards. I thought my standards were high already. They're clearly not. Um, but yeah, I think that was a massive learning curve for me. But I think I remember when we first launched and we sold a subscription within like the first half an hour or something. And I just felt like, oh my God, that's amazing. Obviously not like considering the cost that it, it was to make everything in the first place. But yeah, I think that was a big one. So this is with no website or ability to sell anything? Yeah, that we just... We just knew that we wanted to do it. I think we knew that it was time to do it. We got a lot of requests and we got a lot of, we actually got a lot of emails emailing in saying, oh, I've just found this mistake on your worksheet. And, and it wasn't ours, but actually if you searched White Rose Maths worksheets, all sorts came up and it, it felt like at that time that we were the only people 
that weren't doing white rose maths worksheets. Um, and I think we wanted to make, obviously, quality is massively important to us. So I think when it did, it caused us concern. It's weird because it did actually cause us concern that someone thought there was issues in our content, even though it wasn't our content and we knew that. But there's still that worry of the other people's perceptions. of. So I think we knew that we could produce some really high quality materials to support our schemes of learning and offer it at a low cost because we wanted it to be affordable to schools. What were your worries? I think the biggest concern that we had as an organisation when it got past the start of June and we still hadn't launched whiteroseducation.com was that we were letting teachers down. We were so confident in the start. We had a set date in all of our heads and would never even considered the idea that we weren't going to hit it. And so we'd said the start of June and we'd said it so confidently everywhere and people were waiting on it. And it, it's easy to assume that the biggest thing that caused stress to us is the lack of income for these new products in that time, but it, it absolutely wasn't. So that's why we made the decision to get the first block of each of the new products on the website to make sure teachers could access it so that they could get ahead for next year. Like we know, especially in primary schools, that is the peak time where you've just finished SATs, you need to get ready for the year ahead. You've got so much coming up in the next few weeks in terms of activities and so on. So, yeah, that was the biggest concern and that what we never want to do is let teachers down. That's that's always the number one risk in anything that we do. And it's what we'd avoid above anything else. Have you ever felt your sex has put you at a disadvantage or an advantage? Who have you inspired or been inspired by? Let us know by emailing podcast at whiterosemaths.com or on any of our social media channels. We read and reply to each one and would love to draw upon your thoughts in future episodes.